Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Trader Cobb Crypto Show. Today's guest, this is a man who is from the same part of the world that I am from. In the early days, he knows the surf breaks. He knows where to go when it's four foot, five foot, six foot. He's also moved on between Singapore, New York, and London, carving out an amazing career in the derivative space. I'm talking to VJ Angelo straight out of London, who is a speaker at the CC Forum event coming up very, very shortly. And he's the CEO at London Derivatives Exchange or LDX. Thank you so much for your time today, VJ. Hi, thanks for having me on. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, VJ, look, let's just start the way I always start. And that's really a bit about your background. I mean, obviously you, you're doing what you're doing now. You're the CEO of a derivatives exchange, which I am so keen to get into the, uh, the detail on, but I want to start first of all for the audience more than me, just get a bit of background on where you've come from and, uh, and what your journey has been thus far. Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, I actually started in Australia, my, my family in Australia, and I went to school there and started um, on the floor of the Sydney Futures Exchange when it was still open outcry back in the mid 80s. Wow. Um, I then worked briefly um, for a couple of years uh, for a couple of brokerage firms, um, moving from FX to uh, something I thought was more interesting, what was then called capital markets. We now yep. call um, interest rate derivatives, doing forward rate agreements and interest rate swaps. Um, having been trained by one of the firms there, I was offered a job in New York um, in the late 80s, 1988, I moved to New York, uh, where I spent two and a bit years. Um, New York wasn't a fun place to live in those days as much as I was enjoying the work side of it. And I was then offered a position in London uh, at the end of 1991 uh, with a company called Tradition, which I joined, um, moved here, where I am now in London, and stayed with them for 11, 12 years, uh, working through all the exciting times in the financial markets, the ERM mm. crisis, the recession, um, then the, the boom in the 90s through to the various crashes of uh, commodities in Russia and <laughs> oil, and then the, finally the dot-com bubble, which burst in late 2002. Um, throughout the time, I, I, I sort of like to keep at the sort of forefront of the market changes, um, got involved in technology towards the end of uh, my time and tradition, helping them build out a uh, electronic trading platform, which was then later developed into their swap execution facility uh, by a couple of guys I worked with then. Um, I then took a break um, for a couple of years, coming back to Australia um, to play as a racing driver. I managed to, to do the two Bathurst 24 hours while I was down what? there. Uh, yeah, man, I raced the target Tasmania a couple of times as well, which was lots of wow. fun. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was huge fun. Um, then <laughs> decided it was time to make a, a living again. And uh, started working for a firm, helping them set up their uh, derivatives business in Singapore. Uh, once I got that going, moved to London uh, and worked for a variety of businesses here, again in the uh, fixed income and derivatives markets. Uh, finally, realizing that the, the brokerage business, I think, was heading to a sort of a wall of sorts and got involved in exchanges and technology um, in 2012, setting up what is now London Derivatives Exchange. Then, um, was based around a concept for a new form of futures contract that we developed. And we moved um, into a formal uh, structure of the business in 2013. Um, the German Stock Exchange and Futures Exchange Group, Deutsche Börse and Eurex, took a, a significant stake in this in 2013. SopGen then joined them in 2014. And we spent the last five, six, seven years building the business out in a couple of different guises. 
but essentially with the same target to provide uh, innovative uh, solutions to market problems and challenges using technology and market structure. Uh, and that's where LDX is today. We're now uh, involved in bringing our products to market using uh, blockchain, smart contracts, um, and tokenization, as well as a, a new product we developed along the way for uh, capital raising, effectively taking the ICO market uh, in a slightly different form into a regulated security token market. So that's basically the background in brief um, and where we are today. Well, I appreciate that. Now, you, you mentioned two things, problems and solutions. So I, I'm really interested to get into that a little bit more detail. What are the problems or what were the problems and, and what solutions have you come up with? Um, well, if we start on the, the, the uh, fixed income derivatives side, with yep. the huge change in market regulation and oversight or re reintroduction of oversight, Place the global financial crisis followed by the Greek crisis and yeah. EU crisis in 2010 11. Ongoing, wasn't uh, it? it was a big one, yeah. Um, we had you know, things like the Volcker Rule, MIFID II, um, we had Dodd Frank and a whole bunch of other stuff coming in, which put a huge uh, burden on capital yeah. for businesses that were already capital constrained, like the banks. But it added a, a huge burden on capital to a lot of businesses which hadn't been in, in particular. Uh, caught by margining rules. So effectively having to put up deposits to trade mm -hmm. certain products, in particular over-the-counter products like interest rate swaps, which I'm sure people read the papers in those days, were in the press all the time. Um, so we were looking at how the regulations were gonna affect the balance sheets and the costs for these businesses, and worked out that instead of doing effectively over-the-counter bilateral trading, which was going to be margined at a very high rate, if we could convert those products into a listed derivative, i.e. something on exchange, mm -hmm. the margin costs were still going to be there, but there'd be something like 10% of the OTC market. But the trick was to create a product which replicated the way they traded in the OTC market. So we spent a couple of years developing that product um, called the Constant Maturity Future, which basically took uh, all the, the daily... Um, spot markets for interest rate swaps and bonds and we commoditized those into a set of contracts that remained uh, consistent so if you traded a five-year bond and uh, one of our contracts you remained in a five-year bond in perpetuity to close the position out yeah it just rolled it every day effectively yep. um, so that was that was one structure we built it was um, it was very popular in terms of um, people wanting to trade it but the infrastructure of the market um, was very, very heavily bent towards its existing model, um, which is the quarterly contracts with a static tick value, right, $10 or 10 euros or whatever it is per tick. But, and with this legacy having been built up over the last 30 years of technology, <clears throat> catering just to that particular structure of uh, a futures contract, it was very, very difficult to get a new product mm. that was totally anathema and totally contradictory to the way that market worked into the systems. We spent a lot of money integrating it into um, you know, Eurex, integrating into our own systems, <clears throat> and then into a lot of the intermediary systems. And it was, it was a very, very big uh, project. In the end, um, it was too big. There were just too many hurdles for us to get it all the way through. But it, it didn't kill the project off. Um, we looked for other ways to take it to market and continued working on it um, alongside some other projects we brought by our clients. And one of those other projects brought us into blockchain, smart contracts, and tokenization. And we realized that that was probably the way to go. It wasn't something that the market we were dealing with was going to be able to adopt immediately. But once we educated them and we were able to use the agility of, those, of that technology 
there would be kind of a, a crest of hill moment where we'd be able to, to crest that hill a lot faster than just beating our head against a brick wall with the existing infrastructure. So we decided to follow that route. Um, and all the way along, our, our key focus has been what's the problem? How do we solve it? Rather than we've got an idea and we think we should adopt it, which continuously looking at the problems that not only we had, but our clients had um, in adopting new, new products and uh, how they were trading and changing market environment and continuing to solve those problems, uh, hopefully in a cost-effective uh, and innovative way. So what's been the biggest, um, I guess, uh, change or aha moment within LDX? I mean, obviously you've got pedigree. You've been in the uh, securities and derivatives market for a long time. Um, what, what's been the biggest aha moment as far as technological advancements within the business? And, and sorry, I asked that question before I, I should have sort of segued to the question. For those that are listening, you need to understand that there is more markets than just crypto. You all know that I've been trading for 13 years. The last two has been more exclusively in crypto. I'm very familiar with all the products that, um, that we're talking about right now. It's, it's about finding a market and trading it. And depending on how you trade and the way that I trade is that I can, I, I can move from market to market without too many issues. I usually take two months uh to work out what items of news or reporting or whatever it will be i uh, will move that market now of course in the crypto space it's very different there is really no sort of justifiable news announcements or calendared news announcements but in traditional market platforms which is what we're sort of talking about right now here with vj there's there is a, a certain regimented routine so my question comes back so just just the audience understands my question comes back to you vj um what was the what have you done to make your platform different why are you different to anybody else out there because i can recall back in what 2000 during 2007 i was in london and my goodness gracious me there were so many brokerage accounts i'm not talking about anything else but just brokerage accounts. they were lighting up everything like exchanges what we call exchanges here in crypto now uh we're doing and, and look I, it was a wonderful period of time for me because they were making so many mistakes and as a full-time trader i was finding those mistakes and massively profiting off of those mistakes um what makes what was the big moment for you and, and the ldx team to decide you're trying to go to blockchain i mean that's a, that's a big step outside of the traditional space right it was it wasn't so much a big step it was a, it wasn't a, a an aha moment it was dawning you i think you can have a, a great aha idea but you can never really leap into it without doing the research uh without doing the study without seeing how that idea is going to be applied uh what use it's going to be to the clients um whether they even want it um and if they do want it can they actually adopt it so it, it it's, you can have the aha moment which says we'd like to um, we'd like to do this and we think it's a great idea but uh, actually going into it and using it and adopting it is a very very difficult thing to do yeah um, it takes a lot of study research um, development and that sort of thing so we had some initial interaction with uh, blockchain in a partnership with urex um, it was a buzzword for a long time yep. um, it was something which a lot of different companies were looking at. And Urex invested quite a lot of money into a firm called Digital Ledger Technologies, a Blythe Masters firm. While they were doing that, we were 
studying what blockchain was. Um, and the problem at that time was nobody really knew exactly what blockchain was. Yeah. Um, they, they knew it was an interesting way to, um, to do verification. There was obviously there was an element of the, the anarchist about it and reactionary about it. Let's do something that the banks don't have control of, something which I quite like. Yes. Um, and so we, we did look at it for a while before we got involved. And as blockchain became this sudden new industry and everybody's incredibly excited and it seemed it was going to do everything, including washing your windows and make your bed, um, <laughs> we had people coming through the door. Um, I was a terrible skeptic um, of it in the early days. So was I. Um, I just, yeah, I just didn't believe it was going to do all the stuff they said. And the, the amount of energy uh, it was consuming just seemed ridiculous. Now, Bitcoin was, I think by the time we started looking at it seriously, it was consuming more energy than the Netherlands mm -hmm. um, and kept climbing. So when we looked at it, um, we looked at it more from the, the concept of the smart contract rather than blockchain. We looked at the agility of the smart contract and the technology behind that <clears throat> and what it could do. And rather the blockchain was a delivery mechanism. Um, and it's basically, the blockchain is nothing more than a telegraph wire, which everybody can see to a certain extent or certain people can see yep. um, to confirm that what's going down it is real. It's what goes down it that is the real value to us. The smart contract, which we can program uh, to adopt a whole range of um, different messages, messaging systems, legal documentation, uh, commitments and, and actions that can be automatically created. That was what really excited us. Now, blockchain also was really useful insofar as with a combination of the smart contract, we could circumvent a huge array of intermediaries, techno technology intermediaries inside the market. Each and every company seems to have this spider's web of different um, methods of transmitting orders, receiving confirmations, receiving data. And some of them are quite complex in their structure with multiple layers. Yeah. We discover the smart contract we program to take all of the required information in a format that the recipient needs. So they may have multiple systems inside uh, an individual institution. We could program all the different providers of those transmission systems into a smart contract in one token and deliver that token to our market and instead of having to plug into every different intermediary, the single token would have the messaging systems for the messaging uh, formats for the, those systems, and they could just populate the the, um, the systems upon receipt. It's still not a, a simple thing to do, but the the teams that we're working with have got a huge amount of experience with this. So our our, our model was, we can continue going down this route of integrating with absolutely every ISV, every uh, intermediary, every technology firm involved in, in the markets or we can find a shorter, faster, cheaper route, which will still take us some time and it'll take some adoption, but there's, there's a point where you crest a hill and everybody sort of sees the sun and uh, you know, the valley ahead and, and dives in. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. So the ha-ha moment was, we need to do something different, if you like, uh, yeah. and we need to find some way of doing this in a different fashion, and that's how we ended up where we are now. Okay, so let's talk to that a little bit. You had an aha moment as a business, or you and your team had an aha moment as a business. What's the aha moment for the client? I mean, you're, you're derivatives trading platform. Um, I know you do work uh, within the STO space, and I think that's an admirable thing to do. I, th I think you know, having legitimate companies that have respect, quality, pedigree behind them is going to do nothing more than help the space. But what... You know, when we 
convert back to the end user? What do they benefit? So the end user, the, the, the trick here is two things. Um, the end user is always looking for a faster, cheaper, but still high quality and secure way of doing anything within the business, be it trading, messaging systems, confirmation, risk, analytics, data. Um, the, the, the constant is we want to make more money. There's two ways to make more money is to trade a bit more, take bigger risks, uh, increase the, the assets under management, or to reduce your costs. <clears throat> in a low income environment, which we've kind of been in with even with low interest rates and, and sort of either low to no volatility or extraordinarily high volatility, which is the, the absolute things you don't want going from low to no volatility to, to incredibly high volatility. Um, the only thing to do is then is look at cutting costs. <clears throat> yeah. And what we're looking at is saying, well, firstly, we can solve several of the problems. One is uh, we can find new problems products for you to trade, which they all desperately want, um, but can rarely get because it's so difficult to create them. We can reduce your costs, uh, which is step one. Uh, to get anybody to adopt anything, you've got to have a significant uh, game change or a significant reason for them to do it. An incremental cost change isn't going to do it in this environment. It's got to be a significant cost change. And it's got to be something that they can see throughout the entire ecosystem. So if you're changing something for just, say, a trader, the trader can ask all he wants, but if the the, the chief operating officer, the chief investment officer, the change of control officer, don't see a significant change, they're not going to prioritize it. Yep. Because those go back to trade harder, um, make more money. You're not making enough. So you've got to be able to go to each one of the people in the chain and say to them, look, this is going to make your life easier uh, and it's going to save you costs. So it's, it's a process, not an event, and getting them to adopt it. So our, our model has been learned from our first attempt to get a new product into the market. Uh, and understanding how all of those guys adopt new products and how they look at them. It has been to look at each point in the supply chain within an, an end user uh, and a client and say, right, we've solved the problem for this guy, but unless we get you know, at least half of the other people in the supply chain on board, this is not going to work. So solving the problem for just the trader alone isn't going to do it anymore. The days of the trader saying, I'm trading that, everybody else fix it are long gone. Mm. So we have to go back and you know, look at the risk profile, for the investment committees, look at the, um, the product structure for the change of control officer, make sure that it's adoptable by the, the clients of the end user, because even they have end user clients like pension funds and school pension funds and uh, those sort of things. Make sure that that's feasible for them. Uh, so the CIO has to be um, taken care of. And then the chief operating officer has to look at all of the, that string that I mentioned and the various technology applications and say, right, yes, this all makes sense, we'll adopt it. And that's something that, that's very difficult to do. Um, and it takes quite a while. So our aha moment from the business was, we found something which we think can do all of this. Um, and it took us probably two and a half, three years of study and, and research to see if mm -hmm. it could, and also for the market to develop to the point where we felt comfortable adopting it. So look, your clients, obviously, let's talk to the STO just for a little bit. Um, security token offerings, right? Um, you're from a traditional background, as am I, right? Traditional investors, traditional markets, uh, traditional products. Um, and they've, they've definitely ha held court for the better part of what? Nearly a hundred years. I mean, let's be honest. The, the, the current system that is in place, if you're talking about spot markets, 
uh, it really hasn't changed all that much. Liquidity has changed and the ability to get access to those markets has changed. Derivatives have been something of a more recent, um, you know, addition. When we talk about FTOs, we talk about securitized token offerings. And now that brings with it liquidity to markets or that, that may not have had the access to liquidity in the past. Now, how are you addressing that? Who are you addressing it with? And who are the clients? Who, who are you finding as um, uh, corporate clients that are the most interested in that STO environment? Um, I think the first thing is to clear up what is an STO. And I think mm. there's, a, there's a big misunderstanding. So Correct. security token um, is nothing more than a new technology of application to securities and securities are a broad range of things from equities to debt instruments like bonds warrants um, to commodities in some cases security is basically anything uh, that you create that has an underlying asset in some form whether it's an interest payment or a share of a company or an asset it could be weather um, there's securities on weather these days it could be anything yeah so i think that there's, there's, there's this is incredible confusion well so much confusion, misunderstanding as to what an STO is. So a security token offering is basically a tokenization of any particular type of security. So the derivatives that I mentioned a minute ago, which we will be bringing out in a tokenized form next year, is an STO, a security token. The security tokens which we have actually ended up working with more recently are a new form of um, capital raising instrument. It was born out of the ICO market. Um, I got involved with a firm uh, called Crypto Index, which developed a, an index of the top 100 tokens over the last year and a bit. Um, initially, um, I was quite keen to do an STO, but that would have been very early. Uh, so we're talking April, May last year in that market. And given that nobody really understood what, what tokens were at that point, it was a bit of a stretch. So we structured the business around a, a slightly stronger form of ICO, uh, giving a bit more security to the, a bit more comfort to the investor in that particular product. But it also meant um, I was involved in a roadshow last year as the, the crypto market crashed and the ICO market collapsed. Yep. And while I was in Asia, I was sort of banging the drum about now's the time to adopt STOs, now's the time to, to you know, get regulated. The regulators were, were coming down hard. The Howie Act was being applied in the US. Uh, we had smaller countries inside Europe like Gibraltar and Malta coming out with their own versions of a MIFID II set of uh, regulations and legislation uh, to apply to tokens and defining things like utility tokens and STOs and e-money and the firm of cryptocurrencies. Um, so while I was in Asia, I was asked by a very large asset manager to um, structure a, an STO that looked and felt like an ICO, but obviously was regulated and provided a, a infinitely more comfort for the investor than existed in ICO, which we did. Um, we sort of didn't think much more about it after we presented it to them and they presented their client. And somehow through word of mouth, it got around and we were approached when we got back to London by a number of firms uh, to help with this capital raising uh, version uh, of STO. Um, we now actually signed 11 decent sized companies uh, all very good quality companies existing and, and early stage, uh, certainly past uh, post uh, seed capital in Series A. Um, and we're helping them raise capital in this particular model. Our model is a, a revenue share token. So instead of giving away equity or taking on debt, you effectively put a portion of your revenue away uh, and the investor gets a percentage of your revenue or joins a pool of people that gets a percentage of your revenue. Um, 
they can work out the return on investment, which is based on, you know, in a simple form, the amount of revenue share that's put into the pool and the number of tokens they have as part of that pool divided by the revenue share. And you can work out a, effectively a return on investment. <clears throat> it's a little bit more complex than that, but in its simplest form, it gives both sides something. It gives the investor a great deal of comfort. I like dividends, revenue share is a lockup if they're earning revenue as, as a distribution event, uh, whereas dividends we know can be can come and go. Yeah. Um, the, the, the fact that they have no claim on the assets or uh, there's no debt instrument in there means that the revenue share uh, effectively stays in position until the, the company buys the tokens back um, or the, the investor sells it onto a third party. Uh, and that's kind of a, a quid pro quo. So you may not have to give them the assets and the company may not take on a debt you'll have to repay one day, but you're going to have to keep paying them revenue share um, until that event happens. Uh, that particular structure is regulated in Europe under a thing called the Collective Investment Scheme. It gets quite, I won't bore you with the details, but it gets quite complex after that. Um, however, we're finding a, a huge amount of interest in the product. Um, it's purely tokenized, all on blockchain, our own private blockchain. Um, it's all properly regulated um, in terms of uh, how our, we're approaching it from a regulatory approach in every format that we do. Yeah. Uh, we're structuring the market so that it replicates the way that, that the traders understand it. So we have an exchange and we have a licensed custodian which holds the assets. Yeah. One of our key focuses was uh, client asset protection in developing all of our markets. Uh, having seen a constant hacking of exchanges, we were really, really conscious of the fact that we had to make sure that the assets were protected and almost completely unassailable um, by hackers or, or uh, thieves. Of course. So we, we basically attempted to take the existing market structures that's seen from the outside, replicate that optically, but underneath apply a whole new technology stack, which is blockchain, smart contracts and tokenization. And the thing I like about it uh, a great deal is the regulation side, Vijay. Um, a lot of these projects out there today and, and yesterday didn't have that regulation stamp. And from my point of view, being a traditional market trader of many years where there's no regulation, I definitely felt very uncomfortable. I've got to be honest, I still feel very uncomfortable holding a certain amount of Bitcoin on certain platforms that allow me to have the margin requirements that I need. Um, to maximize my upside for my trade. I'm very comfortable taking very large multiples of leverage or margin because, you know, if you trade foreign exchange, bonds, commodities, stocks, and share, you know, all that sort of stuff, it, it, it's, it's day to day. Uh, I think that's a really, really big thing that people overlook is the regulation side of it. Now, you guys have done a huge amount of work on that regulation side, and, and that needs to be, look, it needs to be spoken to. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of exchanges out there. Actually, some of the biggest exchanges in the blockchain space are not under any regulation whatsoever. Now, as much as you might like to trust them as someone who's new to the market, someone like myself and Vijay, it's trust is built. It's built. And, and I, I just don't trust a lot of them. And, and, and that is why I teach a lot about risk management coming from more than just the trades that you take. It's the exchange you hold it on, how much you hold, where it's held, and all these sorts of different things. And I think it's fantastic seeing someone like yourself, mate, uh, coming in and, and sort of taking charge. Um, regulation is a big part of the growth of the industry. I've, I've always said it. Um, a lot of the, um, I don't know, the 
I don't know what, what you would call them, but the people that are like, um, you know, against governments and that sort of thing. Um, no regulation. Well, let's be honest. Without regulation, without rules, I mean, let's be honest. Governments do waste money. We know that. They might not always do what we want them to do, but there is a certain amount of order that is required in society. And when we're talking about, uh, you know, derivatives platforms, exchanges or brokerages, there needs to be a framework to work within. And when you're talking, VJ, about bringing what you do in your traditional background <coughs> to the STO environment, as well as working across many different derivative-based products, without regulation, you ain't just, you're just not going to grow. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. <clears throat> the... Um the anti-regulation movement came from both sides. We had the, 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 the right-wing capitalist movement, and then you had, all of a sudden you had, post the financial crisis, you had the, the sort of more slightly left-wing and anarchist movement. Libertarian, so, yeah. The libertarian. So it's quite funny to watch the, uh, <clears throat> the regulators and legislators stuck in the middle wondering what to do. Um, you know, the, the, the amusing thing is that you had the two sides, effectively uh, two, two teams on a football pitch saying, we'd like to throw the referee off and do whatever the hell we like. <laughs> Um, and we'll pick the ball up, we'll run with it, we'll kick it, we'll do what the fuck yeah, we want. Yeah, yeah, and you know, kick each other as well. Um, so it was, <laughs> it, it's bizarre. So the, the interesting thing is that um, on both sides, um, the reality is we've come full circle. There's no question that regulators and legislators get it wrong. Um, and there's no question that, that you know, the, they're always under severe lobbying from both sides for various changes, and they do get pushed and pulled about a bit sometimes, which is understandable. <clears throat> but um, having gone full circle from deregulation for the capitalist side of the market from the late nineties when um, Glass-Steagall was, was repealed and we had the big bang um, as investment banks and high street banks um, merged, starting with Salomon's and, and Citigroup, I think it was in 99 or 2000 or somewhere around there. And then we had obviously had the financial crisis um, and as a reaction to the, to the, to the banks and what the, the libertarian saw as the institutional world, uh, we had the growth of Bitcoin um, and this uh, under sort of, I won't say underworld, but this underlying new economy, which suddenly popped up because people just didn't trust the banks anymore, unsurprisingly. So. Uh, yeah, so it, it's come full circle now where both sides have been bitten. And you know, more recently, the crypto market has had that huge collapse, uh, obviously a slightly, uh, slightly smaller retracement in the last few weeks. Um, but again, that's been down to the fact that it hasn't been properly regulated or monitored. And I think if people understand that regulation isn't there to stop business, it's there to make sure that business flourishes properly and we have fewer crises, we have fewer disasters. Um, if you think about it, you know, we've had a classic example in the last 20 years of exactly what happens when you deregulate heavily. You know, we, we had, yes, we had um, booms and busts since 1929 and we had uh, crashes here and there, but nothing on the scale that threatened the entire economic system the way it did back in the 20s. And that was because we put in a set of regulations uh, stemming from the Glass-Steagall Act in the US around the world to prevent that kind of crash happening. The minute we took those away, it did take a few years. It took sort of, um, a good six, seven years for it to yeah. happen. We created a system, uh, having pulled the rules away, that threatened the entire global economy. Um, and I think if, if both sides realize that, that regulation is there to protect everybody. Um, and the enemy. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's going to help. And the regulators, I, I think we certainly have found, <clears throat> and, and uh, in fact, I wrote an article for Crypto AM here in, in uh, the UK uh, last week. The regulators are keen to see um, 
new products and new technology flourish. It's, it's a business enabler and the free flow of capital is part of their um, remit. They're not there to stop business. They're there to enhance business, but their sure first foremost mm. objective is to protect the investors, protect um, starting That's with the job. Yeah. So we think if you embrace regulation, if you make the regulator your friend, if you work with them and as long as you don't do anything, you know, untoward and you keep them informed and you, you can argue with them. Um, in fact, you're absolutely beholden to argue with them because they don't always get it right. Yeah. Um, and if you're creating something new and they don't understand it, there are going to be discussions that need to be had. Um, but as long as you approach it from the point of view that, that you know, um, and the FCA, I've actually put this out in the crypto asset guidance notes, they're technology agnostic. Mm. There's a set of regulations out there. Use them. If you don't understand it, come and talk to us or get the advice. And we're happy to, to engage with you. And we've been doing that for quite some time with them. And we do have a fairly solid backwards and forwards with them um, even today. Well, Vijay, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, mate. Getting a bit of insight into the finer details of uh, things outside of crypto, as well as looking into through the hourglass into basically the STM market and how a uh, real business I don't say that to um, you know discount any others out there but a, a real background in finance is approaching that STO market I, I think it is a very valuable uh, asset class to come uh, right now we are still literally laying the foundations if we're building a house we are digging the footings we have not poured the concrete yet but it is something that I see as being the future of asset classes uh, you know fragmenting uh, asset classes and providing liquidity where liquidity doesn't really live at the moment. And uh, seeing someone like yourself, VJ, at the forefront of that technology, working with the regulators, working within a regulated environment and uh, being so open to talk about that. I, I can't thank you enough, uh, mate. Where can we find out more information uh, about what you're doing and the uh, London Derivatives Exchange? Um, obviously, the first spot to start is with our website, which is uh, LondonDX, that's LondonDentalXray.com. Um, you can also email us if, if you can't find everything you want on there at uh, info at LondonDX.com. We'd be more than happy to um, pass information that you can't find there. The website's in development, uh, and it's certainly just gone live over the last five or six weeks in its new format. Okay. So information is slowly being built up into it as we develop out um, uh, our projects. We've got a number of companies which we've uh, signed with, which are up there now, uh, starting to raise capital. And our, our uh, trading platform is now beta live, so you can actually go and see what's uh, what's going to be coming uh, on the platform itself. Excellent. Well, VJ Angelo, CEO of London Derivatives Exchange, speaker, keynote speaker at the CC Forum in London from the 14th to the 16th. Mate, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I look forward to the Black Tie event where we'll all get to sit down and eat food and uh, drink beer on someone else's purse. So I look forward to meeting you in London. And me too. Thank you very much for having me on today. Not a problem at all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. I'll speak to you again very soon. Bye for now.